Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Well, good morning, and almost Merry Christmas. I really appreciate you being with us. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Luke's Gospel today? Okay, so I'm going to invite our morning readers to come and join us, and they're going to read to you from Luke's Gospel, the second chapter. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will, be, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appear with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those who favor rest. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, for us who are the well-adjusted, well-educated, modern men and women, we've beyond, or we've evolved, I should say, beyond our need for these archaic traditions and superstitions of our predecessors. I mean, we we don't believe in mythical characters anymore like fairies or fire-breathing dragons or honest politicians, much less angels or demons. And we think kind of superstitious, that kind of superstitious, naive thinking We leave that to our ancestors, who were the knuckle-dragging mouth-breathers who lived in caves before the Ice Age. That's how we think of these things. These are just these fanciful things. But even in a modern setting, if you leave the Western Hemisphere, you find that most other countries and cultures are still steeped in deep-seated beliefs in the supernatural. It's why author C.S. Lewis and many others have argued that it's not because we in the West are much smarter than the rest of the adolescent world as we seem to arrogantly think. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, would present something that Kevin Spacey would later go on to eloquently say in in the film, The Usual Suspects, when he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. This is the modern Western thinking that there's no spiritual realm, that all that is seen is all that there is, but it might be because the devil really is a liar, a greater liar than we give him credit for. Now, I'm aware that we've got some young people here with us today, and so I'll be careful how I say this, this, but I was just uh, this last week uh, with a fire crew uh, for my weekly chaplain duties, and the guys began to share some of their stories about some of the gnarliest calls that they've been on, and I don't really even remember how or why, Their story shifted from just gnarly calls to ones that seemed to have a spiritual influence. And each of them, coming from a mixed bag of different theological or even religious beliefs and backgrounds that were represented there in that table discussion, all of them started to begin swapping stories about the sketchiest calls they've been on that clearly involved someone who possessed superhuman-like strength that was inexplicable, it was was beyond their ability to understand, other than they gave credit to, there clearly is a spiritual realm that's at work in the lives of modern men. My point is not just that naive people living in distant lands without access to decent education, that they believed in things like this. It's not just that they did, it's that they still, we still are seeing evidence of the fact That there are spiritual beings, angels and even fallen angels, who can manifest themselves into our physical world. 
You see, the Bible tells us great detail about a cast of characters that are neither human nor yet quite divine. They're essentially in between the two, not being quite human and yet not quite divine either. You see, like humans, they were created, these angels were, by an eternal God. But unlike humans, they do not procreate and have an offspring. Like God, they live outside of our realm and can manifest themselves within it. But unlike God, they do not preside over our human realm and existence as the Lord and power ruling it all. Like humans, they have a beginning because they were fashioned by God. But unlike humans, they do not die. Like God, they have supernatural power. But unlike God, they do not have unlimited power. Quoting from an author who is seeking to answer the question of what angels really do within creation, the author, he writes, and I quote, angels serve a variety of roles in scripture. They advocate, they protect, they make war, they announce, they teach, they comfort, and they guide. But mostly these heavenly messengers have one real job. It's to worship the triune God. Now, may I remind you that we are in our Christmas Advent series, and and you remember, I'm sure, that Advent simply means arrival or coming, that this is when the church around the world takes four weeks to remember the great gift of Jesus' first Advent and to look forward to, in anticipation, a future Advent. It's this traditional celebration of his first coming, remember the first Advent, that he came in humility and the eager expectation of a future time where he returns again in glory. You see, Advent allows all of us, it invites us into the brokenness and tension of trusting and waiting on a God who we believe is good while living in a world that we recognize is deeply broken. It's the longing of ancient Israel awaiting their Messiah, yes, who came in humility, but came as the answer to their heart's longing. And it's still the longing of all of creation who longs for him to return and make everything right again. You see, this season of Advent is meant to remind us that all that we hope for, all that we live in tension for, every day waiting for, is found in the one who we long to arrive and free us from the brokenness of our existence and to walk us into a brighter future. And there's four traditional themes that churches around the globe for hundreds and hundreds of years will observe leading up to Christmas. And those themes in speaking of Jesus are to speak of the hope that he gives, the peace that he provides, the joy that's the byproduct of his presence in your life, and the love of God expressed in him. And so today we discuss the topic of joy, and I want to do that by observing a key character in the early Christmas story. Last week we discussed Mary, and I don't want to go back to revisit her, but I'd like instead to focus on the angels that were there at that first advent. And so that's what we'll do as we discuss joy, as we'll look at the angels. You know, in the records of the very first Christmas story, an angel by the name of Gabriel first is seen when a priest named Zechariah is performing his duties in the temple. The stunned and befuddled servant who's there in the temple, Zechariah, hears a message from the angel that he counted to be really too good to be true. When the angel told him that his wife, who is well past the age of childbearing, would become pregnant and bear a very significant son, a son who would be the forerunner of Jesus, who would go ahead of Jesus like a herald would, announcing his soon arriving. His name would be John the Baptizer, we'd call him. Just a handful of months later, though, that very same angel, Gabriel, would appear again, this time to a young teenage girl living in obscurity. As we referred to her last week, Mary was just an insignificant teenager from an obscure village living under occupation as a member of a defeated and suppressed nation. And then you notice in the Christmas story, not once but twice, the angels appear to Mary's fiancé Joseph to assure him that God indeed was involved in the pregnancy that was otherwise inexplicable in his fiancé, his bride-to-be Mary. And then an angel would arrive above the shepherd's field. It's what we just read about that took place in Bethlehem. To herald the good news of a miraculous baby being born in their village before then an entire host of angels, it tells you in that same passage, emerge in order to pronounce together and sing together glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Or some translations seem to better render it Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. It should not surprise you that the angels were present to watch the arrival on that night of God in the flesh. 
After all, the book of Job, chapter 38, tells us that they were present watching on the first day of creation itself. In his book, The Characters of Christmas, author Daniel Darling, he writes saying this, In the midst of God's spectacular work, speaking of creation, there was something missing. The canvas of creation was incomplete, and thus the divine pause. This is where I imagine the angels gasping in amazement. God had not made the earth as an untouched museum piece, but as its own kind of studio. The earth needed a new and special kind of beings, artists who reflect their creator, but also take up the new instrument of creation and do their own creating. So the Godhead speaks, let us. Notice the intentional deliberation from all the members of the Trinity. Let us, they said, make man. Well, make no mistake, the angel saw this moment as this glorious moment. The pinnacle of God's creation would be God creating man in his image. But no doubt the angels in that moment, they recognized the divine risk involved in this. This was different than everything else that God had made because God did not need man in order for God to feel sufficient or satisfied and whole. But God, for some reason, makes man as a free moral agent. You see, mankind will not yield as the trees do naturally to the wind when it blows. No man will be free, free to love or free to reject even God. More shocking still to the angels was that they would have watched and seen More shocking still than God, creating man with the capacity to love him or reject him was the fact that man chose to yield to a serpent and his lies that that good God was holding out on them. In that moment, that serpent, they'd watch in horror as he would inject his poisonous venom into all of creation, infecting God's good world with sin and sickness, suffering, death, and decay. The angels, the wild thing when you think about it, they're wise and they've been in the presence of God. They know God and they know how God functions. They know how God works. They know his attributes, which tells me that they are aware that God does not share in their surprise and horror in that moment at the decision of the creature to rebel against their loving creator. They know that God was fully aware of what was playing out before their eyes, so why, they must have wondered. Why would God have made the decision to even make man in the first place if if this is what would happen? And how in the world could this divine, eternal tragedy ever be anything less than the end for mankind and the end for God's good world? But then they would have heard God from Eden itself speaking a promise saying it before the serpent and the woman who was there, saying that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Please hear me. These angels were not only creatures who were created by by God before the creation of the world. The scripture tells us that beyond their courtside seat to view humanity's history The real thing worth noticing, the scriptures say, is their wonder at the goodness of God and his commitment to humanity. It's a beautiful verse in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, that tells you that the angels long to catch a glimpse of the gospel's surprising beauty, that God would become a man to rescue mankind. In the little book, The Inklings at Christmas Time, it quotes C.S. Lewis as saying that this moment in time is where the Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. And that is what the angels, the scriptures say, are looking on with wonder in their hearts, with amazement at this profound, amazing, eternal plan of God working out in their midst. Oh, think again, they were there, the angels were, to hear God pronounce at creation, it is good, as he observed everything that he quote-unquote had fashioned, everything that he had beautifully designed within creation. They would be, no doubt, in the future, from the cradle that they were around in this moment, they would no doubt be around a cross where they would hear the Son of God pronounce from the cross that it is finished. But in this moment, at the dawn of salvation's work, it is they, the angels, 
We're given the honor of pronouncing that it is beginning. And that is so very good that this is good news for all people, they said. In fact, look again in your Bible in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, which says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It's really this statement that the angels make here that I want us to hone in on and specifically discuss this morning. This statement of them, them proclaiming that I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. I want to consider with you looking at the angels and their perspective, wondering what would it be like to have been with them or to have been one of them on that first advent, to, to view the story, this moment in eternal history from their perspective. And I want to do that by looking at three things that they pronounced in that statement. The first is that they said this was good news. Or your Bible might say good tidings. The second that I'd love to discuss with you is that they said it would be the source of great joy. But then the third thing is that they, with confidence, pronounce that it's good news that will cause great joy for all people. So let's take that statement that they make and look at these three components that I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. So begin with that statement with me, where, where they say that what they are bringing in this moment to the shepherds is good news. I mean, when you think about it, this is an ordinary night. These are shepherds doing what they ordinarily did out on the fields, watching their sheep by night. This night is ordinary to everyone, but to the angels and now to the shepherds that they make this stunning announcement. I guess if we're fair, we'd also say this night is anything but normal for the young mother and her fiancé, Joseph who now are, are huddled over top of a new baby boy. It's them in this primitive culture in a shabby stable without the help of a midwife or a doctor or a nursing staff or modern amenities or technology that we're accustomed to at all of our local hospitals. This was anything but normal for them to see a baby enter into the world. This was a traumatic night for them, probably to say the least. But the emperor's palace, Nero, Nero, or excuse me, Caesar's palace in Rome, was quiet and still that night. Herod's fortress in Jerusalem, it didn't wake up and tremble. The who's who of the day had no idea that anything out of the ordinary had taken place. In fact, they were so far from earshot of the cries of that baby Jesus in Bethlehem that they had no way of knowing that anything significant had happened. But heaven that night invaded the earth on the silent night, we call it. But its silence was shattered with the sound of the angel's pronouncement and with the distant cry of a baby who was born and was now being held in the arms of a tear-filled teenage young mother. Again, quoting author Daniel Darling, he said, The creator wouldn't just rescue his creation. The son would become human. And he wouldn't appear in dazzling robes and white-hot splendor. He wouldn't blind the eyes like on Sinai or boom from heaven like he seemed to have done in Eden, God would enter the world as a vulnerable, dependent, fragile baby. But how and why is this good news? Because that's what the angels say about it. The sad thing to me is that for so many people still today in our modern setting, their view of Christianity, they're asking the same thing. Why in the world would anyone call this good news? Because what they think is that Christianity may at best prove to be good advice, but Christmas does not provide them with good news because they merely honestly see it as mediocre news at best because the Christian message that they've heard is really about religious moralism, where God is nothing more than a glorified Santa giving each of us what we deserve and have earned after kindly offering us the chance to land on the nice list through our best efforts and human behavior. But the angels did not come offering a good opportunity they didn't come pronouncing, this is a decent chance for humanity, or even, this is a long shot, but at least you get a shot for you then through your best effort to make yourself worthy and through good behavior to make the dean's list and score a scholarship offer to heaven itself. 
That's not what they pronounce here. They pronounce it, this is good news. You know, I'm a sports fan, and I'm, I'm not a big college football guy, but one thing I've really enjoyed this season from college football is I've loved seeing the viral videos that maybe some of you have seen, where there's a new thing happening on the game day show every Saturday morning where there's a retired NFL kicker who's going to all these different colleges around the nation where they're broadcasting live uh, for their TV show from, and he's pulling out of the crowd during their, their television show. He's pulling someone out and asking them, usually a, a buzzed college student, asking them if they want the opportunity to kick a 30-yard field goal during this live college game day, Saturday morning television broadcast, while thousands of their college peers are around them cheering for them, and while literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions are watching on live television. And the stakes are high because in addition to all those who are watching, there's then an offer for tens of thousands of dollars to be paid out in cold, hard cash if they can kick the field goal through on their very first try. And the TV host offering the money, he recently even upped the stakes, offering a million dollars after pulling a student from Duke University out of the crowd who looked more like a laser tag kind of guy than like someone who's had much experience or success with a ball sport. And as you would guess, although some of the weekly contestants have possessed this air of confidence, none yet have successfully kicked the high-dollar field goal through the uprights though they make incredibly humorous videos and trying. But please hear me. The good news of Jesus' arrival is that God is not just giving you a chance in life, a chance to do the impossible, to earn your way back into right standing with him through your best human effort. The reason it's good news is that God left heaven to do for you what you could never do for yourself. If we just brought it down to a grassroots example that I realize is crude and, and such an oversimplification, but he would be the NFL kicker and TV host offering the uncoordinated computer science student, which is no offense to my techie computer club friends in the house, but offering them a million dollars to successfully kick the field goal and then telling the kid to have a seat, sit back and watch as he kicks it for him, as he earns the prize for him. Oh, it might be exciting news for a moment to be given the chance to kick a field goal for a million bucks, but just wait till all of a sudden the, pressures are, the pressure is on and the camera is rolling. But what about when the stakes are even higher than that? What about when it's life or death instead of just padding your pocket with cash? What about when it's eternity at stake, eternity with God or separated from him? You see, if Jesus merely came to earth to blaze a trail for you to follow on so that you then could try to prove yourself and earn your place, if Jesus was merely an example, he'd crush you. But the angels pronounced that night that this was good news, and they tell you why it's good news. Look at verse 11. It's because they said a Savior is born tonight. Oh, please hear me. Christ is not primarily an example for you to follow. The Bible is not primarily a book filled with good principles to apply to your life. Our church is not primarily a place to help you live a better life. In other words, Christianity is not about helping you to get better at keeping the law and being a good citizen. It's about Christ doing for you what you are unable to do for yourself. Make no mistake that Jesus, yes, was a wise teacher. Undoubtedly, he set a great moral standard. Without argument, he is a sage, a healer, and a miracle worker. But above all, he's a substitute and savior. This is what he came to be. This is why it's good news that they brought. It's because Jesus, as he'd say of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's Jesus answering someone else's amazement of these things when he would say in John's Gospel, chapter 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God, he said, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Oh, know that the angels marveled because the one who breathed life in humanity just gasped for his own first breath while a stable heard him cry. But the angels sang in worship because God had come to do the unthinkable, not just to subject himself to humanity's skin, but to do it so that he could suffer in humanity's place. Oh, this is why it's good news. 
Augustine, the early church father, is quoted from an ancient sermon that was written down and then passed through the centuries to us. Speaking of Christ's authority and his vulnerability when God took on flesh and became a man, the sermon was preached in the year 188 AD where the preacher said this. He said, he who made man became man. He was formed in the mother who he himself had formed, carried in the hands which he himself had made, nourished at the breast which he had filled. That in the manger in mute infancy, he the word, without all or without whom all human eloquence is mute, he wailed. The New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul, he said it this way. He says, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. It's Isaiah the prophet who looked ahead to these things and said it this way. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, that God has come. See, the angels pronounce it, this is good news. And they clarified what, what it was about it that made it good. It was good because the one born to us in the city of David, verse 11 says, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a Savior, not merely example. That's why it's good news. But that second thing, it's good news because he is also not just a Savior, but he's the Christ. Now, for us who are far removed from these ancient times, we can scratch our heads and say, yeah, but what does it mean? And what am I supposed to picture when it says here? And what am I supposed to understand when it makes the declaration that he is, Jesus is the Christ? Because in ancient times, it meant the anointed one. It be, began to be used in the Old Testament scripture, speaking of the Mashiach in Hebrew, the Messiah, God's promised anointed one who is coming as the fulfillment of God's promise for deliverance for his people. In the New Testament Greek, it's Christus or the Christ, the Messiah, the, the one who is anointed by God from heaven and sent with special purpose. It's the title, be clear, of God's promised deliverer a promise that he made way back in the Garden of Eden. And the angels are wanting to leave no room for guessing or for confusion. They're saying that this baby is the arrival of God's long-awaited promise. That's why it's good news. Because he's a savior and he's the one humanity has anticipated and longed for. Well, the promise in Eden has echoed and reverberated throughout creation, throughout the ages, and it has now wrapped itself with flesh as God himself embodies his promise and lays in a manger. Don't miss what heaven is saying. It's that God will finally crush the serpent's head, but he will do it while he himself will be wounded. You see, the angels here, they're pronouncing, this is really good news, and they tell you why. It's good news because a savior, not an example, has arrived. Because the long-awaited promised Messiah, the Christ, has come, and he's come to crush the head of the serpent. But they also say the reason it's good news is that he is Lord, that he's Lord of all. Please hear me if, I love a good if-then statement, if, if Jesus is God's promised deliverer sent to save us, then should we not echo the angel's proclamation and also call him Lord of all? Lord over all of creation and Lord over every area of our own lives as well. Because this is who Jesus is. He is God's promised deliverance, God himself coming to save us. And be clear on this, he is therefore Lord of all. The Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, he wrote saying this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in submission of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess and openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord that he's sovereign God to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'll tell you, as I was thinking about it this week, I actually think there are a few things less appealing to a modern American than the willingness to allow someone else to be Lord over your life. I mean, to be an American is to pursue happiness and freedom, right? Like, that, that's what we all think of. To be American, as we look at our roots, is to, to push away any authority figure over us. To be an American is to fight the powers that be, if need be. I think to be an American, this might be the least appealing thing to us, is to allow someone else to be Lord over our lives. To give someone else that kind of power can feel terrifying. 
to give someone else the right to direct your decisions and actions, you might even call it dehumanizing. To give someone the position that is yours and yours alone of Lord and master over your own life and decisions, it feels unthinkable. But what if the one that you'd bow your knee to as Lord, what if he's the God who created the universe with infinite wisdom and power, who then in humility and love entered into that creation to make right what you've done wrong and to save you from yourself and from your sin? Surely if anyone has ever been worthy of the position and title of Lord in your life, it is Christ Jesus the Savior, as the angels here call him. You see, Christmas is the invitation for you to allow Jesus to be your Savior, but also your Lord. Because let's admit it, humanity has done a lousy job as its own Savior and master of its own destiny. And we are numbered amongst humanity who have not done so well either. You see, the angels come proclaiming that this is good news, but there's a second thing. It's good news, they said, of great joy. For me, I've been struck leading up to this series with doing some reading and trying to saturate my mind and heart in the Christmas story. I've really been struck by something, and that's the fact that everyone in the first Christmas story, everyone's response to the angels appearing and to the angels' message of God coming to invade the earth left every one of them, it says in your Bible, very, very afraid. Last week, it's we discussed Mary, and it tells us that the angel told her, do not be afraid. Now, why would he say that other than if she was, in fact, afraid? Last week, we referenced Zacharias, the father of John the baptizer, and it tells us that he was greatly troubled and gripped by fear. So the angel told him, do not be afraid. In Matthew's gospel, it records for us an angel saying to Joseph, do not be afraid. Let me quote it to you. Where in Matthew's gospel, it says it this way, but while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin Uh, shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The same thing would be spoken on the night that we're looking at here, the night where the angels appeared to the shepherds who were watching their flock by night, where on that very night that Jesus was born, they were told by the angels, do not be afraid. The angel tells them not to fear, and that instruction Not to fear. That instruction that was given, I think it echoes down to us. And the reason it echoes down to us as not just a command, but even an invitation, is because there's good news to replace that fear. You see, the good news is that God has neither forgotten his people nor his promises to them. He has become, as the angel told Joseph, he has become Emmanuel instead. Remember, it means God with us. He's visited his people and shall be called Jesus, which means Savior, for he has come to save and rescue once and for all. You see, this is what makes the message of Christmas a source of great joy, is that in Jesus we have Emmanuel, God with us, who has come as Jesus, the Savior, to save his people from their sin. Do you understand at Christmas, this is what we celebrate, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the Savior coming to save the world. Think of it this way. If you merely had a Savior who is not with you, then you'd probably live in fear and dread and insecurity. But if you have someone who's with you, who doesn't save you, then at best you have a cosmic therapy dog. But Christmas is the celebration and reminder that we have God with us, having come here to rescue us. Charles Spurgeon, he's quoted in the book, Joy to the World, is observing, saying this, saying, Indeed, this is good news. He who made the heavens slumbers in a manger. What does it mean? That God is not, here's what it means, that God is not of necessity an enemy to man. Because here is God actually taking Manhood into alliance with deity. Oh, the eternal seems to be so far away from us. He is infinite and we are such little creatures. There appears to be a great goal fixed between man and God, even on the ground of creatureship. But observe, 
He who is God has also become man. There is therefore no longer a great gulf fixed. On the contrary, here is a marvelous union. Godhead has entered into marriage bonds with manhood. Jesus Christ, eternal God, was born and lived and died as we also do. That is the first word of comfort to expel our fears. I mean, my friends, please hear what the angels are saying to us. They're telling them, fear not, but the end of fear is not closing your eyes to reality. It's the opposite. It is opening your eyes again and again and again to see a good and gracious sovereign God who came near enough to suffer for us and to therefore save us from this present broken reality. In Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, he he said it this way, if you take time to comprehend, to behold as the angels had said, what is in the gospel message, it will remove the fear that has dominated and darkened your life. To the degree that you truly behold, that you gaze at, gasp, and relish, internalize, rejoice in the gospel, to that degree the fears of your life will be undermined. Oh, do you see the love of God for you? Do you see his love in this moment in a manger made manifest for humanity to look upon, swaddle, and hold? The scriptures, it tells us that his perfect love casts out our fear. And when you ask in your mind right now, but could he actually love me though? Me. Look at the story and how it answered, because heaven didn't give you words. Heaven itself came down. The infinite became finite for you. The heights of heaven reached down to lowly humanity. The king of heaven took on flesh and was laid in a feeding trough. He would live ridiculed, having the legitimacy of his conception story questioned constantly. He will grow up in an obscure blue-collar family. He will survive by the sweat of his own brow. He will be called the friend of sinners, the rabbi to the broken, maligned, and discarded. He will be, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. And he would willingly do it with the full knowledge of what it would cost him to the amazement of the angels. He'd do it because of love. And when you think about it, we don't just see then a helpless baby there. We see lying there the God of the universe who wants his family back. We see God the Son pursuing his bride. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said that in the incarnation, the Son veiled his glory, but he did not void it. Make no mistake, it was God come to earth that was there. You see, the angels proclaimed, this is good news that is the source of great joy. And I think that there's actually an invitation then that you would trade then your fear for joy today. It's quite possible that many of us share in common what our greatest fear is, though. And it's not public speaking or even death itself. What we dread might be the death of our life, though, as we know it. It's the fear of surrendering control of our lives. That's the true story. That's our greatest fear. Oh, how can we trust him and entrust ourselves to him then? The answer to that question is found beneath the bodies and the gaze of two new young parents on the outskirts of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. Because there we find the omnipotent Son of God who loosened his grip on control when he in meekness and humility made himself dependent upon a mother to feed him and a father to protect him. And the most shocking detail about it all is that he did it for you. That he did it for love. That, my friends, is someone I believe that we can trust and entrust ourselves to. That we can allow him to be a savior, the Messiah, the Christ, and the Lord of our lives today. You see, this is why the angels came pronouncing good news that really can bring great joy in place of fear. But they said this also about this message that they brought, and that's that it was for all people. This is the third and final thing. Yes, it's good news that brings great joy, but they said that this is true for all people, and that's significant. 
Because when you consider who the angels first made their pronouncement to, these nameless shepherds outside of Bethlehem, for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, even some of you, I assume that your mind goes back to a young shepherd boy who raised sheep on the hills of Bethlehem, who even is referenced by these angels, the great King David of old, when they pronounced the arrival now of the descendants of the great King David, who would arrive as a baby born into the city of David of Bethlehem. But for others that I read this week who are not just familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, but also are familiar with the rabbinic teachings from the time frame of Jesus, they look at some of the details that are given that are extra biblical details, referencing them, although few with a level of certainty where they'd be dogmatic or adamant about it, they would look though at this region and say that there's hints and clues in these ancient writings called the Mishnah, that because of the close proximity to Jerusalem, that the shepherds in Bethlehem were individuals who worked for the temple. That these shepherds were the ones who were raising very specific sheep, sheep that would be used for sacrifice in the temple. It would be under their watchful eye that they would protect and provide for each lamb, wanting to keep it suitable for sacrifice, which means free from a a break or a blemish. Which is why some would say Luke here in his gospel tips his cap to this reality, seeing that these shepherds are awake even at night watching over their sheep to keep them pure and spotless is the idea. So if these were the watchmen set over these specific sheep that would later be used in the temple for sacrifice to make peace with God, then look now at these shepherds arriving on that fateful night to find the one that John the Baptist would call the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the whole world. They would find him as we do, spotless and perfect. He alone able to now function as our substitute and sacrifice for all of humanity for all time. But we're discussing this good news being the source of great joy for all people. And these shepherds, I believe, exemplify this so clearly. And here's why I say that. Because heaven's announcement that the Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born was not made to the prominent or prestigious. It wasn't made to the morally upright or the financially successful. It was made to those who sat within the lowest class in society. These lowly shepherds. Society didn't respect them. In fact, ancient extra-biblical rabbinic writings make it clear that the first century culture they found themselves in deemed them, writing publicly, that they were dishonest and untrustworthy, the cast of characters known as the shepherds. The idea is that they were a low part of the earth in every way. You see, these shepherds then are representative of an entire cast and class of the poor, the humble, the lowly, the maligned in society, and notice then, those were heaven's choice to not only send the first message to, but also to make its very first messengers for the world, to tell the world of the good news of Jesus, to tell the world the gospel. Do you see by doing that, that the that heaven itself is really trying to make clear that this really is good news It's a source of great joy for every person, even the lowest of lows, these shepherds, who had the least respect in the culture. You see, we see it in heaven's choice of them, but if it were Matthew's gospel, we see it even, as we opened this morning, I would tell you, if we had looked at Matthew's gospel, I would tell you that we see it in the father's choice of the lineage and family that Christ and his good news would arrive through. Because Matthew's gospel doesn't begin with the announcement to Mary and then to the family. It begins with Jesus' genealogical records. And maybe you're like me, and when you get to a genealogy in the Bible, you're really tempted just to skip over it, and you're like, I don't know that there's anything for me here. But think about the genealogy of Jesus. Because I'd encourage you this week even to take a fresh look at that first 17 verses in the book of Matthew. Because this is not just an ancient family record. In an ancient culture, this served as your credentials. That's what this was. This is who I'm coming from. For us, maybe we lead with, this is the school I went to. This is the kind of background I've had. This is the education that I've been a part of. These are all of the accomplishments I've had in my career. That's how we would lead for them in an ancient culture. They would lead by telling you about their family line and history. And rather than scrubbing in the record of Jesus' genealogy, which is basically his credentials, rather than scrubbing or just glossing over these sketchy folks or sketchy moments in his history... God instead makes the decision to include and even highlight them. 
I mean, sure, as you look at the genealogy of Jesus, sure, Abraham, although he's a liar who hid behind his wife because he was also a coward and was willing to let her be taken off and abused in order to save his own behind, sure, he makes the cut because he's Abraham. And we know that the promise was made to him. And and sure, Jacob, yes, also, who's essentially uh, someone who stole from his own family, sure, he makes the list. But why include Tamar? Because there's some funky and embarrassing details to that story. Why include Rahab's name? Because she's a known prostitute. Why include Ruth's name, who is an outsider from outside the nation, who who others would look and say that alone is reason to discard him because she's tainted the line. Why include the details of Solomon's mother rather than just mentioning Solomon, but instead saying who his mother was, which is pointing at the details of what David did when he committed adultery and then murder to cover up his sin, and then Solomon would enter the world? Why include details that would make Jerry Springer blush? Details involving incest and adultery, prostitution and murder. I mean, we've all filled out an application before where we knew how to work the system where you're like, I know I got a list that I worked there, but I'm going to list the contact information for this supervisor because we were good, but not that other person. Or we know what it's like to pick and choose and exclude information, maybe even when you're first dating someone, and they're like, tell me about your family. You're like, you're not ready for this. (laughs) We'll get there maybe one day, but probably not. Hey, we know how this works. This is how we function, because we don't want people looking at us and being like, oh, already I've got reasons to dismiss you. And God's like, hey, here's what I'm working with. Here's who we are. Sure, the genealogy of Jesus, it's recorded for us, yes, to prove that Jesus was in fact the descendant of Abraham and arrived through King David's line, and that mattered. But do you see that it also was recorded to demonstrate that God was willing to be seen and connected with people with distorted, messy, broken stories, that God was okay being connected to them? Pastor and author John Tyson, he said it this way. He says, God is in essence saying that he is able to take people from all of these kinds of broken backgrounds and weave them together into his glorious story of redemption. God is essentially saying that pedigree doesn't matter. Grace is actually what matters. God's not ashamed of what we are ashamed of. He can write them into his story and he can deal with them. God doesn't whitewash it. He says this brokenness of humanity, I can work with this. I'm not intimidated by this. So rather than me thinking that these things were just incidental things we ought to be thinking about, no, 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 these are clues for grace. This gospel actually is for all people. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or an outsider or have the wrong background or you come from the wrong class. Jesus can work with that. It doesn't matter if you are from a category in society that people reject. Jesus says, no, I invite you to be a part of my unfolding family and story. You see, the angels, they said, this is good news. It's going to be the source of great joy, and it's going to be true for all people because all are included. And you don't just see that in their willingness to show up to the shepherds. You don't just see that in Jesus' own genealogy and God's willingness just to air all those details. But even if you're unsure of who Jesus is and how he'd really be, is this really true that he'd include everyone? Well, look at his behavior. Oh, open your Bible this week and read through the Gospels and look at how he treats people. Because Jesus would be kind and be generous and be welcoming and be called the friend of sinners. Please hear me. Nothing you've done can exclude you, disqualify you, or keep you out of the story of God and his love for humanity. His story of the good news of great joy for all people. If you'll respond to God's invitation to receive the Savior, who is the long-awaited promised Christ, and make him the Lord of your life. Oh, my friends, see today that Christmas is good news that is the source of joy for all people. That's what heaven said it is, and I think it's true. Why don't you close your Bible? Today in our Advent series, we're discussing the joy that's found in the gift and arrival of Jesus. And I just want to tell you something I've been wrestling through, and that's that if we're honest... Joy for some of us, specifically for those of us who I think have been deeply wounded in life, it really is the most vulnerable of human emotions. We can find it to be the one that we are most suspect of and even most afraid of and adverse to. 
Because for us to allow ourselves to experience a depth of joy, it leaves us fearful of when the other shoe is going to drop, of when our heart will be broken again, of when the gut punch will arrive again. But Christmas reminds us that our joy is not robbed by circumstances because our joy is not rooted in our circumstances. Its roots are meant to run much deeper than that. It's meant to be rooted in a faithful God who is faithful to his promise and faithfully came and faithfully lived and bled and died and rose again. A God who came as in humility to serve, love, and give his life as a ransom for many. And a God who promises that he will come again to wipe away every tear and to make every wrong right and to usher us into an era with no more pain or sorrow. Oh, you remember the purpose of this season is to turn our minds to what happened at the first advent of Jesus and to awaken our hearts to the hope of what will happen in Jesus' second coming. And so, Father, that's what we do today. We remember We remember Jesus, the joy, the peace, the hope, the love that we find in a manger at the first advent. But Father, our minds and hearts also turn ahead to the future with hopeful anticipation to you, Jesus, returning. And we're praying that we would experience you and in experiencing you, the great gift of heaven, that we would experience joy. A joy that's deeper than our circumstances. A joy that reaches further beneath our disappointment or hurts. A joy that's rooted in an eternal God who's been eternally faithful. Jesus, give comfort and peace and hope today and give joy as we remember your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.